Everybody, my name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. So, in our last episode, we talked about all kinds of different things. So, if you haven't listened to that first episode, you're probably going to want to listen to that before you listen to this episode. And we are going to, in this episode, conclude our discussion on Dr. Mary's monkey. And we're going to really have to put on our skeptic's hat today. We're going to have to ask ourselves what we can and cannot believe that is presented in the book. And we are going to lay out the rest of Haslam's claims. And we are going to, yeah, just assess what is fact, what is fiction, what is plausible, what is complete horseshit. And uh, that is going to be more of a task than one maybe would think it is. And so... There's also going to be a little bit of an onus on you to decide for yourself what you do and do not believe that is presented in Dr. Mary's Monkey. And in the last episode, we talked about the mysterious death of Dr. Mary Sherman and all the things that don't add up in the case. And we will kind of get back to that somewhat today. And we also talked about Dr. Alton Oshner. We talked about the Information Council of the Americas. We mentioned Ed Butler, who was also involved in the formation of the Information Council of the Americas, which was the group that is kind of modeled off after Radio Free Europe and was spreading anti-communist propaganda throughout Latin America and some of the shady ties there. I believed, I know that I put it on my Twitter thread about it, which you can find at Thing Observer. So you can just find my account on Twitter.com. I know I talked about it there on the thread that I posted on this. At the moment, it's pinned to my account. But we talk a little bit about Ed Butler and his uh, some some CIA ties of his, and you know some of the other shady people who were involved with the Information Council of the Americas. Some like Clint Murchison, Murchison, who. Uh, factors into a lot of different JFK conspiracy theories. And so we talked about Dr. Alton Oshner, and we also talked a good deal about David Ferry, someone who not only plays a pivotal role in the theories of Dr. Mary's monkey, but he factors into most accounts of uh, JFK conspiracy theories, if uh, that's what you would want to call it. 
So we talked about a lot of stuff. We covered a lot of ground and we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And so, yeah, put on your detective cap. We're really going to have to ask ourselves what we can and cannot believe today because we are going to be covering all kinds of things, some fact, some fiction. And we are going to finish talking about this book and ask ourselves what it is that we can believe. And so before we get into all of the research that Haslam claims was taking place between characters like Dr. Alton Oshner and Mary Sherman and how this factors into his theories regarding the JFK assassination, we should just ask ourselves, did this kind of research take place in Louisiana? What kind of research was taking place in Louisiana around this time? Well, in 1964, the Delta Regional Primate Center opened with Tulane as the host university, and they would have over 4,000 primates as of 2014. And so what kind of research was taking place at the Delta, Delta Regional Primate Center? Well, during the course of their research, they would infect more than 500 monkeys with simian AIDS. In 1994, 83 monkeys would escape, and they at the time received more than $4 million a year directly from the National Institute of Health. And the man who was the director when the monkeys escaped, he was a guy by the name of Peter Jerome, and he was actually appointed to that position after... His time at where else but the Army's Biological Warfare Center at Fort Detrick, where he would study airborne transmission of diseases. So in 1975, Jerome worked for the Defense Nuclear Agency, the Armed Forces Institute, and the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases at a symposium on biohazards and zoonotic problems of primate procurement, quarantine, and research where he presented his research on the biohazards of experimentally infected primates. So we have some weird monkey research taking place with uh, Tulane being associated with it at in New Orleans. And so at this time, the Soviets were ahead of the U.S. in the 50s and in the 60s in research regard regarding cancer-causing monkey viruses and they had demonstrated in 1951 that simian viruses caused a variety of different cancers. And it is possible that the Americans elite feared that the Soviets may develop a bioweapon, or perhaps um, American elites were afraid that they would beat America in the race to cure cancer. Who knows? But in any case, the U.S. would step up their game. And so this is just an interesting aside, but Robert Yerkes, who I mentioned in the Kinsey podcast, that's the first episode of Things Observed, if you want to give it a listen, and he comes into play. He was possibly blackmailed by Kinsey and uh, just involved with all kinds of Rockefeller Foundation research. He's a, a guy who would merit his own episode possibly at some point, but so Robert Yerkes, he was actually one of the pioneers of primate research, and he would dissect monkey and gorilla brains, and he would, through this research, become one of the global experts on brain function. Um, perhaps you maybe know about Yerkes as the first person to pioneer intelligence tests. These intelligence tests would be used on American soldiers in World War One. That's probably what he's mostly known for. That's why his name is most likely written 
in the history books. So anyways, that's just kind of an aside that I figured out when I was researching into all this stuff. But also worth mentioning before we kind of get deeper into things is that it is very likely that Tulane was carrying out different MK Ultra experiments. Now, I couldn't find any direct links between um, Tulane University and MK Ultra that is stated on the books. That's not to say that that information does not exist, but let's take a look at this guy by the name of Robert Galbraith Heath and uh, see if this sounds like MK Ultra type of research to you. So he would found the he'd be the founder of Tulane Psychiatry Department and he would perform deep brain stimulation experiments using electrodes on more than 54 patients and he would perform LSD experiments where he took six patients and gave them chronically implanted intracranial electrodes and gave them LSD and mescaline and you know studied it and so I mean it doesn't take a rocket scientist to uh, conclude that well Robert Galbraith Heath he was probably involved with the the CIA this was probably MK ultra research that was going on I mean LSD experiments with electrodes in the brain that kind of you know that fits the ticket so anyways, that is just going to give us kind of a little bit of reference of the type of research that was going on in New Orleans, the type of research that was taking place at Tulane University. And so perhaps some of the things that Haslam brings up in his book aren't all too far-fetched. So, you know, that doesn't relate directly to what we're going to be talking about, but it does give us some background information. So anyways, back to the subject at, hang, at hand. So in our last episode, we talked about David Ferry. We talked about the monkeys in his apartment. We talked about the Playboy interview where Jim Garrison mentions that David Ferry was, you know, conducting some sort of cancer research. And he mentions Mary Sherman by name as one of these doctors who David Ferry associated with. And... It mentions that there was some sort of treaties at his apartment on cancer and cancer research. So the document was found at David Ferry's apartment by the New Orleans District Attorney's Office. But all that we have today are fragments of a larger document. At one point in the document, it mentions, it mentions a chapter 9. And so we can conclude from this that it was at least 9 chapters long. But we do not have access to all nine chapters we only have bits and pieces and one thing that i will commend haslam on is that in the back of dr mary's monkey he has pictures of the mary sherman crime scene he puts out the homicide report and some of the other reports related to her murder and he also puts the pieces that we have of the treaties and I believe that he received these from JFK assassination Mary Farrell or something like that. But anyways, the there is a list of kind of what it is that the document is summarizing. So I will real briefly read this list that summarizes all the different studies that is kind of summarized in this treatise on cancer research. So we can get kind of an idea 
of what it is talking about. So the subject of the document is cancer research, and the author appears to have compiled a state-of-the-art review of both re of both viral theories from 1901 through 1955. So 1901, parasitic theories of cancer. 1911, transmission of malignancy through cell-free filtrate. 1930, metabolism of tumors. 1940, breast cancer in mice as influenced by nursing. 1944, electron microscopy study of chicken tumor cells. 1948, microscope findings in malignant tissue. 1949, virus-like bodies in human breast cancer. 1949, induction of breast cancer in mice. 1950, virus as a cause of human and animal malignancy. 1951, virus as the cause of cancer. 1953, is leukemia caused by transmissible virus. 1955, pathogenesis of cancer. So obviously, the treatise is talking about the viral theory of cancer and whether or not viruses can cause cancer. And we can also, because keep in mind, Garrison is saying that this is David Ferry's treatise on cancer research. So let's also look at some of the other things that we can infer from what we do have of the treatise and ask ourselves, do we really think that David Ferry is the one who wrote this? So the author of the article would take cell-free extracts from cancerous tumors and transfer this from one animal to another. They would also use carcinogens to induce cancer. There are experimental drugs reviewed in the paper and a passage even includes how to create magnesium tracinate. There is also talk of how to kill cancerous cells in the lab. There's also talk of these viruses and the potential vaccines in curing cancer. And can we really believe that Ferry had written this document? The document talks about submitting animals to radiation. It talks about using electrophoresis on samples and all kinds of other things that would require not just expensive medical equipment, but it would be difficult to obtain this medical equipment it'd be difficult to use it would it would require a great amount of you know professional level knowledge basically and i mean i've seen many accounts that say that david ferry was a smart guy but he was not trained in this i mean he was a pilot and he was also a nut job so it kind of strains credulity to think that it was david ferry who wrote this um it also talks about experimenting with antibiotics in the treatment of cancer. And one of these antibiotics is called Antivin, and it had not been released to the medical community for trials at this time. So this is an experimental antibiotic that would be very difficult to get your hands on. And so it seems kind of like Garrison must have just assumed that Ferry had written this document because he found a set of typewritten papers in his apartment. And so, uh, it really calls into question whether or not, you know, David Ferry had anything to do with writing this. Perhaps he did, but in my own opinion, it kind of seems unlikely that Ferry was the author of this treatise, of this paper. So, anyways, that's a little bit about the treatise. 
And now let's do a little bit of talking about polio and the polio vaccine. And I believe in the last episode that we briefly mentioned some stuff about the polio vaccine. We talked about how Alton Oshner gave the polio vaccine to his grandchildren in order to, you know, show his faith in the vaccine and how his granddaughter would, you know, contract polio after getting the vaccine and how his grandson would die. And so let's talk a little bit about polio and contaminated polio vaccines because this is going to end up factoring into Haslam's theories about what exactly was going on in New Orleans that kind of served as the backdrop to a lot of the planning in the assassination of JFK. And so we talked a little bit about this last episode and I'm just going to, you know, disclaimer, you guys could probably surmise this already, but I'm not a virologist. I'm not a doctor of any kind. I don't have any medical authority. And to my knowledge, Haslam doesn't either. He's an advertising guy. So, you know, um, don't listen to me. Do your own due diligence. Look into things for yourself. But also... How much can we really trust the medical community? Especially, you know, I'm not talking about like your general practitioner, but I mean, especially when we're talking about institutions like the National Institute of Health or the CDC, uh, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of power that uh, circles these agencies and they don't all the time make the best decisions anyways, you know, so do your own due diligence at the end of the day. Who do you really have to trust but yourself? So now let's talk about polio. Well, polio is a virus that infects the intestinal lining, intestinal lining, and then it makes its way into the bloodstream and eventually affects the nervous system. And at the first, the medical community was using antibiotics unsuccessfully in an attempt to treat the illness until Jonas Salk began to grow polio in labs and kill the virus and inoculate people with this dead virus. So that way when they came into contact with it, you know, they, they would have this dead virus in them, but it would still react to where they would, you know, ideally not get sick when coming into contact with it out and about in the world. And by 1955, mass inoculation was underway. They were getting this vaccine to as many people as possible. And many children vaccinated would recognize the virus even though it was dead, and this would make them immune to the live virus. So this was, in theory, how everything was supposed to work. But as often is the case when you are doing experimental medicine, Things don't go as planned. So at this point in our story, a woman by the name of Bernice Eddy enters. So she was a bacteriologist and she was given the task of safety testing these new vaccines. And when she began to inoculate monkeys with the vaccines, they would become paralyzed and she would really... Uh, my goodness, real bumble butt over here. Let's try this again. When she would begin to inoculate monkeys, um, she began to notice that these monkeys were, some of them were becoming paralyzed and 
she would realize that the virus in some of these vaccines was not as dead as had been thought. And so she would warn the National Institute of Health of this, and a debate would begin as to whether or not the public should be warned about this because they didn't want to create unnecessary alarm. So some doctors, such as Dr. Alton Oshner, seemed to still have faith in the vaccine, and this is when he would prove how safe he thought the vaccines were by vaccinating his grandson and his granddaughter, and you know, his grandson would die and his granddaughter would get polio. And this did not stop the vaccine rollout. Um, it would continue as planned. And it wouldn't be long before word would get out that, you know, the NIH director would resign as well as the Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare. But, you know, this is kind of a day late and a dollar short. A lawsuit was underway. But you know they the medical community came to save the day again with another vaccine that was you know supposed to be safer and so eddie was transferred off of polio research by the nih and she would go on to befriend a one by the name of sarah stewart who would prove that certain viruses cause cancer and her research would lead to the discovery of other things such as dna recombination which became very, very useful and valuable to medicine. And Stewart's belief in this viral theory of cancer would ruffle many feathers at the NIH. So you can, you know, safely conclude that both Eddie and Stewart weren't particularly making friends with the upper brass. Um, so Stewart would begin to conduct her research as secretive as she could as not to, you know, come into contact with the higher ups and get reprimanded. And so she could continue her research without it being squashed. And Eddie would teach Stewart how to grow viruses in mouse cell cultures. And this would prove very helpful in the research that they were doing. And in 1957, Stewart and Eddie discovered that the polyoma virus, which caused cancer among certain animals, would prove the value of cancer virology to a very reluctant medical community. You know, because at this time, the viral theory of cancer was not in, and it wasn't really that respected. So eventually it would be discovered that some monkey viruses can cause cancer, such as simian virus 40. At least this is according to Haslam. It's still a thing that is debated to this day whether simian virus 40 can cause cancer in humans, I should say. I'm pretty certain that it's been established that it can cause cancer in, you know, various different animals. Um, so this made Eddie reflect on the polio vaccine since it had been developed. You know, they grew the polio virus on monkey kidney cells. And so she begins to think, what if we aren't just removing the polio virus? What if we are removing other monkey viruses as well with it? Viruses like Simeon 40. And so, you know, she wanted to get to the bottom of this whole Simeon virus 40 thing. And so once again, if you're curious as to whether simian virus 40 can cause cancer in humans, I would suggest that you do your own research. I am 
not an expert, but I would kind of tend to think that it can cause cancer. I, you know, to the best of my ability, looked at a few different studies, and I'm just kind of skeptical of things to begin with, and I can definitely see a vested interest by the NIH and other, you know, people in the medical community to try and promulgate this idea that, you know, of course we didn't possibly give a bunch of people cancer through the polio vaccine. So that's the thing that's still debated. It's a thing that's kind of controversial in virology circles and stuff to this day. And so, I mean, I'm probably a lot of where uneducated people like myself are going to come to their conclusions based off of their, you know, previously held beliefs, but I did my best to be objective, and I think that some of the arguments that Simeonvirus 40 doesn't cause cancer in humans is a little bit weak. I mean, I mean, I saw some articles that was like, yeah, there's higher amounts of Simeonvirus 40 in, uh, you know, tumors that are you know, analyzed, but it's not in all different tumors of, you know, these different types of cancers. So we can't conclude that it does cause it. And there's also kind of the problem of correlation and causation too, when it comes to this research. And, you know, for something that's so important, it seems like there would have been more research done into it. So that way we could draw definitive conclusions. I mean, a lot of these studies that I saw were with not that big of sample sizes, and it doesn't seem like something that, you know, is institutionally funded all that much. But anyways, so do your own due diligence. But, you know, according to Haslam, SV40 does in fact cause cancer. So anyways, back to this whole Stuart and Eddie saga that we're covering. So, you know, Eddie is wondering if they are pulling off any other viruses from these monkey kidneys um, aside from the polio that they were growing on it. So in 1960, Eddie would speak before the New York Cancer Society and tell them that she had studied monkey kidney cells used to grow polio and that she had discovered that there were cancer-causing monkey viruses in these kidneys. And the NIH, in turn, would destroy her career and do their best to censor her research and just in general make her life difficult. So that's kind of the thanks that she got for questioning the NIH and their mass inoculation plans. So another expert in virology, Lorella McClellan, discovered the SV40 SV40. Um, virus didn't cause cancer in Asian monkeys who had been exposed to the virus. So she carefully sourced green monkeys from Africa and exposed them to the virus. And sure enough, they began to develop cancer. And so Eddie's colleagues would go on to publish more research confirming this and showing that the virus caused cancer in entirely different species by using mice. And so the significance of Lorella McClellan's you know, research in giving the SV40 virus to green monkeys is this virus would not have come into contact with these green monkeys, but these Asian monkeys would have already, you know, came into contact with this virus. And so it's kind of introducing this virus into a population which this virus is 
four and two. And when this is done, it seems that when you introduce this virus to a population that it is four and two, that it has a much worse effect. So Eddie's colleagues would go on to publish, you know, more research and kind of further confirm this and Haslam at this point begins to speculate as to what role all of this could have played in the uptick uptick in soft tissue cancer that preceded. And there are obvious problems with this. It goes back to the whole problem between correlation and causation. And a lot of this, as a lot of what we're going to be talking about, um, that is presented by Haslam throughout the rest of the book is rather speculative. I mean, I'm interested to know, you know, what possible role SV40 in these contaminated polio vaccines played in cancer in humans. But a lot of this section of the book, you know, doesn't demonstrate that, you know, one thing causes the other or that this, you know, uptick in cancer is directly related but i do think it's an interesting question that he poses and i'm not going to shun him for putting forward those questions but you know i think that as we'll get into later he uh he draws some conclusions based off of uh speculations that i think are taking it too far when he hasn't even proved the speculations but anyhow so now we kind of have to ask the question whether Sherman would be willing to develop a biological weapon to be employed in the Cold War against communism in Cuba. Uh, because, you know, that's going to end up factoring later into the story. But I guess another possibility as far as Sherman conducting secret research, and this is another speculation that Haslam kind of throws out there is whether she would be part of a plan to prevent an epidemic of cancer you know so if these contaminated polio vaccines are giving people cancer and they are going to try and come up with some sort of cure for perhaps a vaccine since that was an idea that was kind of you know in certain circles at this time um it would make sense that they would want to keep this under wraps and they wouldn't want this to be a you know big production that the public was aware of and i guess when we're asking this question that we can you know kind of further look into sherman having many contacts contacts in the nih who would have known of her research you know into radiology and into different aspects of cancer research so they would have known of this research and they could have possibly recruited her for such a task uh, sherman knew stewart for instance who we just mentioned who was you know at the forefront of kind of figuring out some of this stuff and she also had many connections um to you know people in tulane university she worked there and there was many connections between Tulane and the NIH. One of these interesting connections is Colonel Jose Rivera, who was a, you know, U.S. Army expert in biological warfare who would hand out NIH grants to Tulane. So, sorry about that. Got a notification on my computer. So, 
I imagine that that picked up on the audio, so my apologies. And so now is the time of the podcast where we get into Speculation City, and Haslam is going to be the one who drives us to our destination. (laughs) And so bear with me. We are going to kind of present the story as Haslam, the theory as Haslam puts it, and then we will later on at the end of the podcast get into some of the problems with this theory. So hopefully you guys aren't annoyed with all the speculation and stuff. There's going to be a lot of it, but we are going to address some of the problems with it. So bear with me, but this is now where we get into linear particle accelerators and, you know, vaccines and all of Haslam's theories that come into play in Dr. Mary's monkey. And this is kind of his attempt to unite all the different narratives, all the different threads that he puts together throughout the book. And the linear particle accelerator is one of the things that kind of helps tie all of this together in his way is his way of trying to explain Mary Sherman's anomalous death and all the different inconsistencies that exist when we take a look at Mary Sherman's death. So when making a vaccine, you can either kill or weaken a virus to create a resistance to whatever that virus is. And the larger a virus is, the easier they are to kill. So with smaller viruses like simian virus 40, it can be more difficult to kill than it is with bigger viruses where you could just, you know, put it in formaldehyde or something like that. And so now I'm going to read a sizable quote from Dr. Mary's monkey. Did Mary Sherman have access to high energy radiation equipment? We should note that equipment was being put into medical facilities at the time. In 1959, Time ran a cover article entitled, The New War on Cancer via Virus Research and Chemotherapy. In it, we read, Almost daily ways are found to give bigger radiation doses more safely to hard-to-reach parts of the body. The list of techniques include radioisotopes, high-powered x-ray machines, and linear particle accelerators. Was there a linear particle accelerator at one of the facilities where Mary Sherman worked? And if so, did she have access to it? The real problem here is that the smallest viruses like SIV and now HIV are so small that they're even hard to kill with ionizing radiation. So what happens if you hit one but don't kill it? What happens if you merely wound it with a stream of somatopic particles ripping through its strands of genetic information, mangling its molecules and scrambling its sequence? If you do, and if it is still capable of breeding, you now have a mutant. A new virus, one that behaves differently from the one you just mangled. It may be more virulent. It may be less. It may behave differently from all other known viruses, since they evolved naturally and this new virus did not. This is the real danger. The moment you place a test tube full of viruses in front of a linear particle accelerator, you enter a brave new world, and you become a part of the biological history of our planet. Was Mary Sherman using a linear particle accelerator to kill or weaken monkey viruses as part of a desperate attempt to develop an anti-cancer vaccine? Was she testing the results of those experiments in live animals in Fairy's underground medical laboratory? Perhaps this is how good science goes bad. And so 
he asked these like they're all genuine questions, but I mean, it's obviously like, well, yeah, dude, that's exactly the theory that you're about to put forth. And so this is, you know, kind of Haslam gearing us up to where the theory is going. And Haslam in the book references an anonymous Dr. X who gets into contact with him and who is feeding him all of this information, but, you know, he's anonymous. So we kind of just have to take Haslam's word that this Dr. X exists, that he's legitimate, and that he is feeding Haslam good information. And, you know, Haslam, you know, if you want to get into all this, you can just read the book, you know, kind of goes into, you know, I'm dubious, I want to make sure that I'm not getting fed bad information, that, you know, he's not some sort of disinformation agent who's sent to uh you know take my investigation to some you know unreputable place that he's not working for some alphabet agency or whatever but then you know has some kind of ends up eating out of all of his different anonymous sources hands so i mean once again this is a thing where you kind of just have to take haslam at his own word that all of this is you know true you have to take you know haslam's um anonymous informants or whatever you want to call them at their word as well so he references this dr x who is supposed to be a surgeon who worked at a renowned cancer clinic during the dawn of linear particle accelerators and dr x would tell haslam of a mr y who is a director of cells for the company that manufactured linear particle accelerators where dr x worked and so eventually Dr. X would tell Haslam of an accelerator that this anonymous Mr. Y had overseen the production of in New Orleans in a location that, you know, of course, Dr. X cannot disclose. And so once again, I will read from Haslam kind of explaining how, you know, this project works. And, uh, you know, so this Mr. Y, he can't disclose where the exact location of the accelerator is. And, you know, so this is kind of the information that he is getting from Dr. X. And uh, so let's see the information as Haslam relays it. The design of the accelerator was unusual. Normally, an accelerator intended for medical use had clinical access features like ramps for wheelchairs or beds for patients to lie down on. Here, there were none. In fact, the intended use was in some form of laboratory experiments which required the radioactive beam be split into equal portions for identical doses of radiation. The overall design resembled an octopus. The accelerator's particle gun was located on the top floor of the building. The beam pointed down toward the ground and struck a pyramid-shaped metal structure on the bottom floor. The pyramid divided the main beam into several smaller beams of equal intensity and deflected them into a series of containment chambers which encircled the pyramid. The targets were placed in the containment chambers, which were specifically designed to hold heat and radiation. The metal pyramid was made out of platinum. The financing was unusual. Since linear particle accelerators cost millions of dollars, the machines were usually purchased on long-term contracts which were paid off over many years. But this case was different. The entire amount, approximately $10 million, was paid in advance. The method of payment was unusual. 
Mr. Y received five or six checks in varying amounts within one week. Each check came from a different company and was drawn from a different bank. So much for a paper trail. Mr. Y went to New Orleans frequently during the construction of the machine, but once it was completed, he did not go back to the site for a long time. Suddenly, there was a problem. He was sent to New Orleans to survey the situation. When he got there, something was obviously wrong. The accelerator building was guarded by soldiers with machine guns. Inside the building, there were thousands of mice in cages. They were doing some kind of vaccine experiment. Dr. Oshner was in charge. Mr. Y described him as tense and extremely suspicious. Mr. Y was particularly annoyed to discover upon his return to home that military intelligence had been investigating his girlfriend while he was away tending to the accelerator. And so there's a portion from Dr. Mary's Monkey that is kind of a synopsis of Dr. X relating the anonymous Mr. Y's account of what was going on. And so in the book, you know, there's more details about all of this, but this basically sends Haslam on the trail to try and figure out where this mysterious laboratory is located, where all of this is going on. And so Haslam tells us through what is a process of elimination that he concludes that this uh, laboratory most likely was located in what would be the military-ran U.S. Public Health Service Hospital, which is right next to the Infectious Disease Laboratory and across the street from the Children's Hospital. And, you know, for time's sake, I won't get into all of this, but he, you know, kind of gives, you know, his account of how he deduces this. And there is some sort of sense to it, but once again, it's speculation and any evidence he has for this being the location is anecdotal. So could it be true? Possibly. There's not a great way for us to verify it. But anyways, we will go on. And Haslam points out that Sarah Stewart left her position at the NIH to work at the Infectious Disease Laboratory the same year that Bernice Eddy announced that there was cancer-causing viruses in monkey kidney cells. And it is also of note that Dr. Alton Oshner, you know, received covert payments from both the U.S. government and the U.S. Public Health Service around this time. And, you know, so this just kind of gasses up Haslam into thinking that, you know, surely this is what is going on there. And so I will read one more quote. Sorry for reading such long passages from... Um, Dr. Mary's monkey, but I feel like it's a better way of uh, summarizing the information than me just, you know, recounting it from memory or if I were to have taken notes. It would just be much more brief for me to read this. And so this is, you know, kind of where we're at in the story. So let's see where Haslam picks it up. There were two brothers in New Orleans whom I knew only by reputation. Both had lived in uptown New Orleans for years and were interested in the Garrison case. I called one, Romney Stubbs, and asked him if he would help me with some research. He agreed. I did not tell him about Dr. X, Mr. Y, or any of the information I, have, uh, I had obtained from them. I only asked him to see if he could find any information which might indicate whether or not there had ever been a linear particle accelerator on the grounds of the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital. One week later, he called me back. Here's what he had to say. 
In the late 1980s, the federal government had sold or leased the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital to the state of Louisiana for $1. The state renovated the buildings and converted the campuses into long-term care facilities for teenagers. He knew an employee and went to see her. He asked her if she knew anybody who might know about the old days. She gave Romney the name of a building manager who had since retired. This man had been directly involved with renovating the buildings in the late 80s. We will call him Mr. Z. Romney tracked him down, Mr. Z, and interviewed him. No, he had not seen a linear particle accelerator, but he did see some very unusual things when he first came on board. He explained the situation. The campus had been about 10 buildings, one massive building, with which was the hospital itself, and nine, and nine or 10 smaller buildings, some of which were residential in design. Mr. Z's first task was to plan for the renovation, so he had to thoroughly inspect all the buildings and inventory for the situation. Mr. Z noted that all of the buildings except one were in comparable condition, with old desk and file cabinets full of papers scattered throughout the buildings. It was what one might expect to find in old government buildings whose funding had been gradually phased out. The only exception was a three-story building toward the back of the campus. It was completely empty. There was not a single desk, file cabinet, or piece of paper in the entire building. It had been swept clean. Everything had been carried off except two pieces of medical equipment, a large microscope, and a tissue slicer used for making microscope slides. It had obviously been some type of laboratory. Mr. Z had been trained as an engineer, and he had worked with electrical systems in large buildings his entire career. He knew what to expect. He remembered the building with the microscope because the electrical wiring was very strange. In fact, he had never seen such heavy wiring in a building before. It had obviously been before the extremely high voltage electrical equipment, more powerful than, he, than any he had ever encountered. The equipment had been removed, but the wiring was still there. Mr. Z also noted that some of the rooms had very unusual features. One room had metal walls which were grounded by heavy cables. He described the other room as a circular-shaped operating room on the ground floor. It was surrounded by a group of small, airtight rooms, which were completely lined with one-inch-thick asbestos sheets on the door, walls, and ceiling. I barely noticed that Romney had stopped talking. The silence hung in the ether. He said, well, I was speechless. Finally, I mustered. That's it. He laughed and said, that's it. That's what? That's the building the accelerator was in. And so that is the story as, you know, relayed by Haslam that he's getting from Stubbs of, you know, this anonymous Mr. Z that he talked to. And, you know, this is kind of the point in the book where I'm beginning to pull my hair out because there is, you know, so much build up to this theory that so far is kind of based on of this guy who I can't disclose said this. I mean, it's like when you're reading a you know some mainstream news article and it's like a anonymous Pentagon of in person told us ABC that you know this happened and it's like, well, how am I? you know, supposed to believe an anonymous Pentagon official when I wouldn't even believe, you know, <laughs> a Pentagon official who wasn't anonymous. Anyways, it's kind of reminiscent of that. 
But anyhow, this is what Haslam relays to us, and we will take a look into how this relates to his theories on the death of Mary Sherman. So we've got this linear particle accelerator. We've got this anonymous doctor who's, you know, relaying the story of his anonymous friend who helped put the linear particle accelerator there. Haslam, you know, thinks that he has managed to figure out through process, you know, through deduction where the linear particle accelerator was. And, you know, he's got this anonymous person telling him that there's these vaccine experiments that are taking place, you know, ostensibly at this point in the book to prevent some sort of upcoming cancer epidemic from these contaminated polio vaccines. And he also just kind of infers that, you know, at this time, you know, Oshner had formally separated from Tulane and that Sarah Stewart in this theory would have been the most likely director of the project. And this was at the time that she had left the NIH and began work at the U.S. Public Health Service and both knew Sherman well. So Haslam said that she would be a likely recruit to work on this effort. And this lab that Haslam suspects to have existed at the United States Public Health Service is what he refers to as the big lab and David Ferry's apartment where they are, you know, doing the rest of, you know, put, take, we'll get into that process later when we talk about Judah Ferry Baker, but David Ferry's apartment is the little lab. So you've got the big lab with the linear particle accelerator and you've got lesser stuff being done at David Ferry's little lab and this is Haslam's theory and so how exactly does this factor into the death of Mary Sherman well as last time you know we explained how her arm is missing the side of her body and you know her arm socket her shoulder area is badly burned once again you can look up photos online or um you know, if you get a copy of Dr. Mary's Monkey, you can also look at the photos in there. But very strange. Seems like her arm has just kind of disappeared. There's nothing that I read in any of, you know, the homicide report or anything like that. I believe that I've read everything that is to the public um, available um, about her murder. You know, there's nothing that says anything about her arm having been cut off. It doesn't, you know, say directly that her arm, you know, was burnt off in the fire, but kind of seems like that's what were, what's implied or something like that. But, you know, bones don't even, you know, burn completely in, when you're being cremated, you know, they're just pulverized and turn into dust. And that's actually what you're getting when you're getting somebody's remains, you know, in an urn or something like that. So it just doesn't make sense. And so Haslam deduces that there was either some sort of horrible accident that happened with the linear particle accelerator or he also talks to a radiology technician and uh you know they kind of explain how if you have some sort of electrical problem with a machine that you the the standard procedure is to grab the circuit breaker and pull it down in order to turn off all the electricity to the machine. And she is 
in this conversation that she has with Haslam saying that if someone were to want to sabotage um, the operation or maybe, you know, get back at whoever's operating the machine, that they could uh, tamper with the machine's wiring and run the main power supply back to the circuit breaker. So that way, as soon as you put your greasy little paws on it, you would just, you know, have... Be, be maimed you would be killed by it and so haslam kind of has this theory that there's either some sort of horrible horrible accident with the linear particle accelerator or that mary sherman for one reason or another was sabotaged and to be fair to haslam there is no evidence that this is a case that is you know concrete we can't even know if this linear particle accelerator existed we can't truly know whether Mary Sherman worked at this place that we can't be sure if it existed. I mean, we're not completely relying on Haslam's word, but all of this is just anecdotal information, piecing together this theory from the little tidbits that we do have in this mysterious murder case and in this mysterious circle of people in New Orleans who are kind of up to some shady stuff. You know, we've got Oshner with the anti-communist propaganda and his work with the Information Council of the Americas, his connections to Ed Butler and some CIA people. We've got this whole backdrop of all that's going on with, you know, contaminated polio vaccines. And, you know, regardless of if you think SV40, you know, can cause human cancer or whatnot, I mean, it is historically documented that there was, you know, kind of all this uproar at the NIH and that there was all this internal problems going on in relation to the development of these two different vaccines. And you've, you know, got Stewart, you know, kind of leaving her position in a, the timeline that would work perfectly with when this part project is supposed to get started. So he is piecing all these little anecdotal pieces of information and construing a whole theory from it. And this is how he explains, you know, what happened in the death of Mary Sherman. And so uh, certainly very interesting but once again, we can't know any of this with certainty. And so now I guess that there's not really a better time to get into the death of Mary Sherman. Oh, not the death of Mary Sherman to Judith Ferry Baker, who did not die. Um, but one last thing is just another one of these pieces of anecdotal information that he extrapolates this whole theory from is that also David Ferry had just been, you know, laid off of Eastern Airlines. And, you know, so presumably he would maybe be looking for some kind of work. So anyways, now let's get into Judith Ferry Baker. <laughs> Sitting home with a month old child. Dang me, dang me. They ought to take a rope and hang me. High from the highest tree. Woman, would you weep for me? One more time. Just 
sitting around drinking with the rest of the guys Six rounds bought and I bought five And I spent the groceries and half the rent I like $14.27 Or dang me, hang me They ought to take a rope and hang me High from the highest tree Woman, would you weep for me? One more time Violets are purple, sugar is sweet, and so is maple circle. And I'm the seventh out of seven sons. Pap is a pistol, I'm a son of a gun. Well, dang me, dang me. Down to take a rope and hang me. High from the highest tree. Woman, would you weep for me? So this whole time Haslam is looking for a witness. He was saying that he was talking to one other JFK researcher who I don't believe he names in it. And, uh, you know, they say, this is all great work that you've done, Haslam. But the one thing that you're missing is a witness to all of this. And I believe that he even says that the publisher of the book is like, you know, this is good stuff, Haslam, but, like, it would really help if you had some sort of witness to verify that. And so this is when we, you know, start to see Judith Vary Baker come into the picture. And she is going to be, you know, the person who's supposed to bring all these different threads together and who's going to be the corroborating witness. She's going to be the one who proves the theories that are set forth in Dr. Haslam's work. So who is Judith Vary Baker and what all can we know about Judith Vary Baker? Well, if memory serves me correct, I can't remember where she was born, but she went to high school in Bradenton, Florida, and she was a, you know, from different accounts in local newspapers. She was a very promising high school student who had a great knowledge of science and there are like I said local articles that had been written about how you know good she is at science all the people who she's impressing and she would even get an opportunity to go to Buffalo New York and study cancer research at the Roswell Park Cancer Center which is a prestigious institute in cancer research at the time and the program was ran by Dr. Edwin Moran, who did research into human susceptibility to a simian tumor virus. That was the um, titles of one of these papers that he had been um, an author of. You know, So he's kind of doing work that's adjacent to this area. We have Mary Sherman, who I believe, um, according to Haslam, that she, as a high schooler, had been, you know, doing research into she wanted to get into cancer research i believe it was because someone close to her had died of cancer and she had figured out like the fastest way to induce cancer in mice apparently at the time this is what we are told by haslam this is what judith Ferry baker relays in her own story and so this is going to catch the attention of people in the cancer community she gets to go out to buffalo and uh, go to this cancer research institute to learn and so this is, you know, you can probably begin to see how uh, she's going to factor into the story.
But anyways, I'm probably jumping around in the order that I should be presenting this. But it was in the year 2000 that Judith Ferry Baker would come to Haslam and be put in touch with her. And Baker would actually be put in touch with Haslam because she had been being interviewed. 60 Minutes was working on a piece about Mary Sherman. And that piece would ultimately never come to fruition. But this is how, you know, Haslam would get in touch with her is that, you know, someone at ABC was like, Haslam, you know, you're going to want to take a look at this guy, which is already to me a little bit sus. It's a little bit fishy. Um, you know, if I was working on this, I would be a little bit dubious if ABC was to <laughs> introduce someone to me, you know. Uh, ABC, known member of the Mockingbird Media, uh, propagandist at large. So, yeah, I'd be a little bit skeptical. And to be fair, Haslam says that he is skeptical and, you know, is trying to do everything he can to see if Judith Ferry Baker's story stands up or not. So he is introduced to Judith Ferry Baker in 2000 and Baker told Haslam that she was the lab technician in an underground medical laboratory located in David Ferry's apartment on Louisiana, Louisiana Avenue Parkway. And more surprisingly, she said that she was handling cancer-causing monkey viruses that were being used to develop a bioweapon against Castro and that this project was directed by Oshner and supervised by Dr. Mary Sherman. And so, you know, Haslam says that he's skeptical, but obviously he's super excited about this. If this is true, this is going to be the thread that unites all the other threads into a cohesive whole, co cohesive whole and it's going to, you know, prove his theory right. And so... After supposedly testing their weapon, this bioweapon that they were working on, successfully on monkeys, they would test the weapon on a human patient in a mental hospital. Oh, and did I forget to mention that Baker said that she grew close to Oswald through this operation and that the two would start an affair. Because they're both married at the time. So, you know, she's saying that she's cheating on her husband, uh, the father of her five children. And uh, <laughs> Oswald's cheating on Marina with her. So, a very juicy, salacious story. And so, you know, let's take a more in-depth look at Baker's story and ask ourselves if we can believe her and if we can believe Haslam. And if... Judith Ferry Baker is the real deal, because if she is the real deal, I mean, that's bombshell information, um, and it will definitely change the way that we have to look at history. So, you know, we already talked a little bit about it, kind of jumping around in order, but yeah, the story starts with Judith's high school career in Bradenton, Florida. You know, she received the accolades for her science research, and as a result, she would be introduced to people like Dr. Alton Oshner and his friend, Dr. Harold Deal, who was vice president of the American Cancer Society. And it was allegedly Oshner who helped set her up with the summer job at the Roswell Park Cancer Institute in New York. 
And honestly, from this point forward in Baker's story, everything just, even if I don't say it, just everything comes with a very big allegedly. So Baker would then have a a failed stint at Catholic College, and then she would spend a year at the University of Florida before Oshner supposedly invited her to work in a cancer lab, which she believed was of national security importance. She was promised advanced admission to Tulane Medical School and a stipend as a reward for her work, as well as the opportunity to work with Dr. Mary Sherman. And so she says that when she arrived in New Orleans, that she would stay in a sleazy apartment, that she would be living with some strippers for roommates. And, you know, she explained that and these strippers would explain to her that, you know, New Orleans is ran by organized crime and her husband is gone at this time. He's gone at work. So Judith Ferry Baker is on her own at the moment. Um, she hasn't had children as of yet, but oh my goodness, that's my dog who's asleep. Could you guys hear that? That was crazy. That was gross sleeping noises. I might have to remove her from the premises, but anyhow, if my dog will manage to not interrupt the podcast yet again, um, <laughs> so, you know, she's living with these strippers. The strippers are talking about how the city is ran by organized crime, uh, her husband's gone on work. She's all alone in this new city in New Orleans in kind of a skeezy apartment. And she would get a job at a burger restaurant to support herself. So she's flipping burgers. And one day she would go to the post office and there would be her knight in shining armor, Lee Harvey Oswald. And so literally the story as it's relayed by her is like pretty funny like she drops an envelope that she plans on mailing and lee harvey oswald and her like you know lee reaches down to grab it she maybe reached down to grab it too maybe their fingers touched and they knew in that moment that it was an affair at first sight but anyhow so lee and judy apparently go and have lunch or something like that they go and hang out in the park for like an hour according to her and baker explains to oswald that she's in town at oshner's request to work with dr mary sherman and oswald goes well that's crazy judy because i was just talking with my friend david ferry last night who's also interested in cancer research and we were talking about dr mary sherman and Lee also apparently explains that Ferry was working as a pilot for Carlos Marcello. And Oswald eventually learns of Baker's living situation and helps her move into a nicer apartment on St. Charles Avenue. You know, so Lee and Judy meet. <laughs> and Lee very quickly is like, oh, that's crazy. Like, you know, as you do, like I'm working on a. Judy's like, I'm working on a cancer project of national security importance. And Lee's like, that's crazy. I, I work with the mob. And <laughs> so, you know, this is the story as relayed so far. And the fiance gets back and they get married shortly after he leaves to go work in the Gulf of Mexico. Sorry for saying her husband. He was fiance at the time. But, you know, Baker says that Oswald was connected on some level with Marcelo's crew. And so... You know, you have Oswald saying that he's working with the mob. Judy's husband gets back. They 
they get married and they have this nice new apartment that courtesy of Lee Harvey Oswald helping out. And so one day Oswald introduces Sherman to Fairy and she becomes impressed by Fairy's knowledge over lunch and Fairy explains that him and Sherman are working on a bioweapon to kill Castro with cancer as you do when you're working on top secret stuff but who knows i mean that's not as unbelievable as some other aspects of the story david fairy loved to run his mouth and so then baker's supposedly invited by fairy where to a party where she first sees sherman and there's all these cuban exiles hanging out there and later that night she overhears fairy explain how kennedy could be killed and uh you know Baker becomes trepidatious about the crowd that she's hanging around. And she asks Oswald if this is a secret government project they're at work on. And Oswald proves this to Baker by introducing her to Guy Bannister, whom impresses her and gives her the impression of legitimacy, you know, like this ex-FBI intelligence connected like alcoholic prick <laughs> like beats people with guns when he's drunk and stuff he gives her the impression of legitimacy and then lee shows judas wep um weapons upstairs at banister's place that they are you know using in making a training film for cuban exiles and also explains that banister works with marcello by blackmailing cops which he enjoys doing after being fired by the police force and so Baker is told that all of Fairy's Kennedy talk is just hot air to impress the Cubans at the party and that he doesn't really mean it, that he's just running at the mouth. So Lee takes Sherman to meet with Oshner and then soon after that she's introduced to Mary Sherman and Mary begins her work in the apartment laboratory with Sherman and Ferry and she's overhearing all this kind of talk about how they need to kill Castro before he nukes America or before Oshner's friends in Texas take this Kennedy matter into their own hands and you know apparently to Judith all this political talk is kind of above her head at the time and she's just interested in doing this cancer research so Apparently, part of this is that William Monaghan, the vice president of Riley Coffee Company, who I believe he really did have some sort of like FBI connections or, or something like that. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, may, if you're interested in that, do your due diligence and make sure that I'm not just spewing from the mouth. But anyways, William Monaghan, like helps her get connected to Riley Coffee Company and her and Lee get these jobs which are supposed to act as cover to conceal their whereabouts and their dealings. And Baker said that she would punch Oswald's time card when he wasn't there and help kind of cover his tracks while he went about doing other stuff. And that Baker would spend three nights a week working at Fairy's apartment and that she would take the mice with the largest tumors and that you take these tumors and place them in a blender, which would then be put on slides, and then clean the kitchen to laboratory standards. And that Sherman would then study the extracted tumors under microscope, under a microscope, before they were enhanced by radiation at the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital and re-injected into mice. And so now we will talk about how. Um, 
so on the day of there was a robbery that took place like multiple months before mary sherman was murdered perhaps that has something to do with the murder perhaps it doesn't you know i believe that in the area that there had been other you know things going on there was the peeping tom who was in the sherman apartments who knows if this has anything to do with it but the date of the robbery of mary sherman's apartment was august 33rd 1960 33rd 31st my bad there is no august 33rd august 31st of 1963 and on august 28th of 1963 that was the date of martin luther king's i have a dream speech and baker claims in me and lee which is another book that is published by trine day just like dr mary's monkey and it's her like five or six hundred page you know account of her love life with Lee Harvey Oswald and all this stuff going on at fairies and all her connections to all these people involved with the JFK assassination. So, you know, on August 28th, the day of the I Have a Dream speech, Baker claims in Me and Lee that Clay Shaw drove David Ferry Oswald and the bioweapon to Jackson, Louisiana with the plan to do tests on this new bioweapon that they created on a human. So they had successfully tested on monkeys and they knew that this bioweapon worked on monkeys. So it was time to do a test on humans. And these humors, these humans would be prisoners from the Angola Penitentiary transferred to the East Louisiana State Mental Hospital. And so Shaw stopped in Clinton, Louisiana, just outside of Jackson, to wait for a phone call that said prisoners were being transferred. But while they expected the town to be quiet as usual, what they instead found was angry whites looking at a black voter registration drive that had been set in motion by CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. And so Shaw still got the call, and someone... Haslam said it was presumably fairy injected the prisoners with the bioweapon. And this bioweapon would take two days to see if it worked. So according to Baker, two days later, Oswald would drive Baker to Jackson to perform blood test. And this was the end of Baker's involvement with the project because according to her, she would soon after learn that what she thought were willing participants in this experiment, that these, you know, prisoners volunteered to be part of some sort of, you know, cancer research were not as willing as she had believed. And so she would write a letter of protest to Oshner about all of this. And according to her, Oshner got really mad that she would put anything on paper and create a paper trail about this. And, you know, just also getting upset about the fact that she's getting cold feet. And so she is left off the project she's no longer working with it um so this is a brief summary of judith very baker's story um you know judith would apparently lose her opportunity at tulane university as a result of this and oswald would be called down to dallas and Ferry, you know, really liked Judith, so he arranged for her to get a job in Gainesville, Florida, and put her in contact with Lee through mafia, spets, mafia sports betting phone lines. 
So that way her and Oswald could talk without being surveilled because apparently these phone lines were safe. And he told Baker that there would be, that is he, Oswald, would tell Baker that there would be an attempt on Kennedy's life and that he thought that David Atlee Phillips was behind it. For those of you who don't know, David Atlee Phillips was the CIA officer who was stationed in Mexico City at the time. And he plays a, you know, role in various assassination theories, um, you know, because Oswald went up to Mexico City, allegedly, at one point. And according to Judith, he did go up to Mexico City, and that was to deliver the bioweapon. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later. But anyways, so Ferry would talk to Baker one last time over the phone. Um, basically saying that if she opened her mouth that she would meet the same fate as Lee Harvey Oswald. And obviously this phone call took place after Lee Harvey Oswald was killed by Jack Ruby. And so that is Baker's story. Um, if for some reason you want to delve deeper into that, there's the Me and Lee book. But now let's get into, you can already probably tell by my demeanor and some of my comments that... I uh, I don't buy Judith Barry Baker's story, and uh, let's talk about some reasons why I don't buy Judith Barry Baker's story. But first, maybe I'll just tell a little bit about my own personal life. So I had gone to the JFK assassination conference uh, two years in a row that is held in Dallas, Texas, and Judith Barry Baker was a big part of that. She maybe was even the person who organized the whole conference in the first place. And there was a number of really good speakers and a number of really sus speakers who uh, definitely have some sketchy elements to her, to them. And I actually got the opportunity to briefly meet Judith Ferry Baker. And I didn't at the time know nearly as much about the JFK assassination as I do now and I hadn't really had the opportunity to fully absorb Baker's story so I didn't get the chance to ask her any questions or to try and maybe come up with some questions to where I could you know suss out if she was the real deal or not I didn't necessarily buy her at her word but I thought both her and I saw Haslam speak the first year that I went. I thought both of them had an interesting story to tell and that they were interesting to listen to. I was like 16 and 17 at the time. So, uh, you know, was not a genius by any stretch of the imagination. So when I briefly met Judith Very Baker, she seemed to be a nice lady. You know, she didn't strike me as, you know off kilter or crazy at the time um you know she didn't necessarily strike me as a disinformation agent i didn't really have a whole lot to think about her going one way or the other but i had some level of skepticism about her story there's a lot of people at that conference who i had skepticism for um some of them going beyond skepticism the second year i went was I believe 2016 and it was you know right leading up to uh, Donald Trump's presidency or maybe it was 2015 it might have been 2015 um, leading up to the presidency of Donald Trump 
and it was when I start to see kind of like the seeds of what would become like the QAnon boomer. I saw like proto QAnon boomers who I'm sure would go full Q tarded <laughs> after long enough. Um, so I began to see that there. And one of the speakers one year was Roger Stone, who wrote The Man Who Killed Kennedy, which is kind of like just, just like shit book about how lbj is the mastermind behind it all you know because you have to have a democrat be be the real bad guy in the story um and man roger stone just sucks i mean from the moment i saw him i mean he is such a sleazy looking dude Dude, he oozes sleaze from every pore of his body. And I saw these, you know, proto-QAnon people, like, you know, just salivate over getting to see him speak. It was upsetting. He probably had the largest attendance of any speaker during the conference. And he would, you know, just bullshit in the halls with with people and stuff. I would actually, he had a Q&A section, um after his talk and I would get up there and I would ask him a question about, you know, how Trump's gonna dismantle the deep state when he's surrounded by all these different people who he was, you know, contemplating putting into his cabinet. And I listed off a big number of names, one of them being John Bolton. And his response was that, you know, a lot of these guys actually aren't as bad as you think. I uh, play poker with John Bolton, and uh, I don't agree with him on like what he did in Iraq and some other stuff, but he's a nice guy, so I uh, thought that was very laughable. Um, yeah, so Roger Stone told me during the Q&A when I went up to kind of confront him on his horse shit that John Bolton's a nice guy, and prior to that in the conference, he was signing books and selling them and uh i just saw him like you know i think it was my dad i think my dad was like i double dare you to go take one of those books or something like that and i did don't want to talk ill of, but that that's cool I mean, if there's anything to take it's a book from roger stone and i read some of it i probably have a signed copy anywhere i don't remember if it's a signed one or not i could give a shit if i have the guy's autograph but he was signing some but yeah i just took a book off the stand because no one was paying attention and they had like a ton of them out there and yeah i read a good deal of it and it's uh it's shit it's probably one of the worst books that you can read on the jfk assassination conference but any uh, not conference assassination anyways i'm i'm on a long rabbit trail so I'll try to reel it back in. But anyways, I briefly met Judith Ferry Baker. She, you know, seemed nice and normal enough at the time. I couldn't really tell if I believed her story or not. But after learning more, looking back on it, and doing some more research, I began to think that, yeah, kind of probably not telling the truth. Um so let's get into some of the reasons why I questioned Judith Very Baker's story. And I probably should have tried to do the podcast in a way to where I spent more time dismantling Judith Very Baker's story because I've spent so much time explaining 
you know, the first podcast is what we can know to be true from the book. The second podcast is kind of laying out the theories that Haslam puts forth and stuff. I probably should have set it up to where I spent more time dismantling the the narratives in here. But I am going to do it in some capacity. And hopefully, um, even though I'm not going to be spending nearly as much time telling you guys some of the problems that I find with it, hopefully it will be enough to... Uh, you know, kind of convince you that Judah Ferry Baker and some of the conclusions that Haslam draws um, are not something that we can believe, at least not believe, unless a hell of a lot more evidence is brought before us that would convince us, uh, convince us of such a thing. But anyways, here is, you know, kind of a brief explanation of some of my problems with all of this. So, aside from newspaper articles written about her being a promising science student in high school and some W-2 form, a W-2 form saying that she worked at Riley Coffee Company and pay stubs from Riley Coffee, Riley Coffee Company, Baker does not have really any more evidence to corroborate her claims. And so, I mean, sure, you worked at Riley Coffee Company. Um, sure, you were a promising high school student who, you know, uh, had a unusual amount of knowledge for about science for a high school student. Sure, I'll grant her all that. And sometimes people will point to a video that has been practically... It's, like, disappeared from the internet. I mean, I don't know if that's anybody's, like, fault. I don't know if it's an intentional campaign of censorship, as, like, someone like Baker would make it seem. Um, or if it's more the fact that YouTube tends to delete videos that goes against any, like, that deviates from the official narrative at all. And I tried to look for it so I could watch it for myself, but I couldn't find it. But I found multiple blogs talk about, you know, this video of Baker's friend Anna Lewis saying that she had double dated with B Baker and Oswald. Um, and Lewis, she was married to an employee of Bannister, but, um, you know... I couldn't verify this, but I've seen people say that Garrison didn't find her to be a credible witness and that she was kind of saying, you know, some outlandish stuff at the time of the Garrison investigation and that he didn't take her seriously. And she didn't mention Judith Ferry Baker at the time of the Garrison investigation. This isn't something that she would go on to mention until, you know, years and years later. But anyhow, we will continue to go on with our story but also i mean that's still not that strong of evidence i mean it would be definitely better than all of baker's other evidence but i've also seen people say that you know um if you watch the video that anna lewis is kind of be being guided to uh say certain things um you know, and so that it's kind of biasing the the witness that Baker is trying to bring in. But, you know, there's only so much I can know because, like I said, I couldn't find the video myself. It's probably still out there somewhere, but who knows. But anyhow, um, so, I mean, the only credible witness that she has, a lot of people don't find to be all that credible. So, um, 
yeah, she's got a W two, some pay stubs. Uh, she was a good science student in high school, and um, a kind of not very reputable lady says that she double dated with you know her and Lee, which still, even if Baker was to have some sort of affair with Oswald, that doesn't do anything to prove about the anti. Castro bioweapon plot and her working with Sherman and Oshner and all these people. Um, Judith would say that Marina would be left alone a lot of times because, uh, you know, Lee was always hanging out with her and stuff. But Marina Oswald, you know, said the complete opposite. She said that Lee Oswald always came home at time from you know when he got off of work and that you know Lee was around for you know when he wasn't working um and just another thing that I'll mention is that Judith Barry Baker she's not mentioned in the Garrison investigation she's not mentioned in the um Warren Commission she's not mentioned in the House Select Committee on Assassinations she's not mentioned anywhere in any of this you cannot find any mention of her name she's not mentioned by any of the people who are interviewed in relation to Riley Coffee Company she's not mentioned anywhere she doesn't show up until you know 2000 and there's a pretty good history channel series called The Men Who Killed Kennedy and there's an episode on her where they go through her claims, but they do a bunch of other episodes where they talk about all different kinds of other things. It's a very interesting watch. It's, I'd say, worth your time if that, that's your thing, if you want to watch like a 10-part a History Channel series on kind of some alternative ideas about the assassination. You know, There's a lot of truth in there. There's some bullshit, but it's overall a good watch. But they did an episode on Baker. So, I mean, she doesn't appear in the public eye until then there's no mention of her anywhere and i mean there was so much documentation about where oswald was who he was with there's so much documentation about you know all these other people who are related to the assassination there's so many witnesses to what was going on yet we don't see judith very baker mentioned anywhere of those but I mean, I guess to be fair, if you're having an affair and you're working on, you know, a secret plot to kill Castro with cancer, like you're probably, you know, going to try to lay low or whatever. But still, you'd think that there would just be some sort of mention of, of her. But Judith supposedly wrote Lee multiple different love letters, but how convenient is it that the address just happens to be torn on each one there's no sender information there's there's none of that you know so i mean she presents this as evidence but it's like it's just evidence that you have you know pencil on paper and i believe they're written on pencil if i don't remember incorrectly which means that you couldn't even like have any way to test how like date to ink or something like that i'm an idiot i don't know anything about that but i think that's the case don't want to spread anything that's not true but anyways it's 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 not good evidence um i've also seen quotes that are attributed to robert baker judith's husband the ex-husband um i don't know if they're true but it would lead one to believe that judith's life is much more mundane 
than she portrays in her book, Me and Lee. Um, so I don't know if Robert Baker actually said that. I think this is just stuff that assassination researchers have put online after supposedly emailing him, but I don't have a way to verify that. But if that's true, Robert Baker kind of, you know, strongly insinuates that her life was much more mundane. And um, those people who Baker implicates in her story of the assassination and the secret bioweapon plot, these are all people who had been known to researchers in the community prior to, you know, Judith Ferry Baker coming up with her story. People had been talking about David Ferry, Clay Shaw, David Atlee Phillips, you know, all these people for a long time. Even Oshner was known to the medical community. And another thing, I don't think that I've mentioned this, Haslam wrote a book prior to Dr. Mary's Monkey called Fairy Mary and the Monkey Virus, which was talking about David Ferry and his, you know, relationship with Mary Sherman and the possibility of some sort of experiments going on. And I believe that he had to self-publish it or publish it under like an even smaller publisher than Trine Day. Um, but anyways, this book, which had, you know, gone around in some places in the, you know, assassination research community had been released prior to Judith Ferry Baker coming out for story. So, I mean, it would be very easy for her to read Haslam's book, to have read a bunch of other books about the JFK assassination and come up with this timeline of her own events and kind of insinuate herself into all these different events. So that's a very strong possibility. Um, so just some more stuff that I think kind of invalidates uh, or at least strongly calls into question, you know, Judith's story is that in 1972, the CIA's Office of Security made a list of all those involved in the plot against Castro, and Oshner's name isn't listed, which, you know, it's definitely possible that, you know, there's people who were involved in plots against Castro who are not listed, but I mean, it implicates people in the agency who are involved in these plots, like all the way up to Alan Dulles, so, um, you know, it doesn't seem like it'd be as big of a deal to, you know, fry someone who's a much lesser character. But who knows? It It is possible that Oshner, and I, you know, wouldn't be shocked to figure out that Oshner was involved in, you know, some sort of plot. Now, whether it'd be like a cancer bioweapon plot, I don't think that we have really any evidence for that. But, um, you know, Oshner was doing his thing with the Information Council of America, the anti-communist propaganda. He had connections to all kinds of shady Latin American dictators and, and all this stuff, you know. So who knows? Um, Oshner was a CIA informant at one point, so I just figured that out since last week. He would gather intel at medical conferences outside of America. So that's certainly very interesting. Um, I wish I had known that last episode and I would have included that. But, you know, as far as I could, you know, find that was proven, the INCA would not associate with the CIA until 1965. So that's another thing that I wish I knew last week is that um, 
I said last week, you know, I'm not sure if there's any direct relationship with the Information Council of America and the CIA, but I have found it since last week's episode. But that would not exist until 1965, at least officially on the records, which is after this whole plot supposedly took place. So it doesn't really match Judas timeline. But of course, you know, it is possible that, you know, that's just what's on paper and that the CIA had some sort of involvement or that, you know, maybe rogue CIA, you know, had involvement prior to that. But as far as what can be proven, there was no association until 1965, which does not fit Judith's timeline of events. And also, if Ochsner was associated with Oswald in such a direct way as Judith Ferry Baker says, one could wonder why he would make statements to the public about Oswald and draw people's attention to him and why he would do all of this, you know, propaganda against Oswald. It would just seem like he would, you know, not want to draw any attention to Oswald if he had such a direct connection. I mean, I understand, and I mean, I personally believe that a lot of the stuff about, you know, Oswald being a communist and going to Russia and, and and stuff like that, you know, I mean, he was obviously involved with intelligence going into Russia at the height of the Cold War, but this was also part of the sheep dipping process, making him seem like he was someone that he that he wasn't. Um, but it really makes one wonder why Oshner would draw all of this attention to himself. And there's also a CIA file that would state that the last contact that the CIA had with Oshner was in January of 1962. So, you know, and I believe it was like 1955 or something like that. He starts doing this thing where he goes to medical conferences and is getting intel on different people for the CIA and the CIA there's this paper, this memo that says you know that the last time that they had any contact with Oshner was in what was it that I said 62 sorry folks let me take another look at my notes don't want to say anything that's false but yes I believe that it was uh, yeah it was in January of 1962 and so back to kind of being skeptical of the claims that Baker makes. Baker would also claim that she and Oswald would meet vice president of the Riley Coffee Company on their first day at work, William Monaghan, who um, I think I mentioned earlier. Hopefully I didn't call him William Morgan. I think that was the guy who was assassinated by the Freemasons. My brain is totally poisoned by all this stuff, fellas and ladies. But anyways, so William Monaghan would tell the FBI that he never knew Oswald. Um, Oswald worked at the company production plant and Baker claimed to work on payroll, background checks, credit reports, and as the secretary to William Monaghan. But it doesn't make any sense why an executive like Monaghan would have met with someone of Oswald's position. I mean, I guess, you know, according to Baker, he's involved with, with the plot and is providing them them cover but you know who knows um riley's assistant vice president in charge of production at the plant said that he only spoke with oswald to reprimand him a few times and that there were only six people who would have came into contact with him and judith fairy baker was not one of these people 
Um, most everybody at Riley Coffee described Oswald as quiet and that he never really associ- associated with anyone. And there was not one person at Riley Coffee, Riley Coffee, who ever placed Baker and Oswald together. So also, Baker states that Oswald's trip to Mexico City was to deliver the bioweapon to an agent who would get it to Castro, but that the agent never showed up, and instead, you know, they went with the plan to kill Kennedy. Now, I don't have the time really to explain it. This could be like an episode or two or three in and of itself, but I think that there's really, really, really good reasons to question whether it was even Oswald in Mexico in the first place. And I think that there's a whole lot of dubious stuff as far as Oswald and Mexico City is concerned. If that is something that you're interested in, Peter Dale Scott, who is a fantastic researcher, has a book on the whole subject. And when I said, you know, there's a lot of people at the JFK assassination conference who I didn't take seriously, one year, Peter Dale Scott was there. And I think that he's an absolutely fantastic researcher. He painstakingly you know just details where he gets everything from everything's meticulously sourced sometimes it can almost be a strain to read peter del scott just because everything is so well sourced and he goes into such detail to you know explain every little thing that he includes in his writing so peter del scott's a tremendous source of information and he gave a great talk before everybody and um, he was a really nice guy and I was very very fortunate to get to meet him he's one of the coolest people I've ever had the opportunity to meet so um, you know but anyways if you are interested in Oswald and the whole Mexico City thing um, you can read Peter Del Scott's book on that and there's also a series of articles maybe I'll link them below for people who want to uh, read about it but that I believe is an excerpt from that book because the book is actually like a series of of essays on the subject that he just um, brought together in a book. But I believe that there's um, some of that online at whowhatwhere.com or something like that. I'll, I'll try to remember to put the put the link in the show notes. But anyways, I mean. I don't think the evidence necessarily points to Oswald being in Mexico City. In fact, I'd say it probably points to the opposite, but that's a whole complex tell on its own. But anyways, I find that to be dubious. And also would just a couple more more broad questions to sum everything up that we can kind of ask ourselves is, would this research really be done in apartments I mean, would they need to use David Ferry's apartment to to do this research? Um, Do they not have access to all kinds of facilities where they could do this research in private otherwise? Um, You know, I, I just don't see the need for that. Would it really be done by someone who was a, you know, promising college student, but was, you know, just fresh out of high school? They don't really have that training to, to do it. I mean, I understand that kind of like the way Haslam tells it that Judah Ferry Baker is just this genius, you know. Um, but also, I mean, there's been times when Judah Ferry Baker has like, for instance, she was writing at one point about how David Ferry was telling her 
about how uh, the perfect poison to use on people and that the mob used is sodium morphate, which isn't even a real thing. It's something that just exists in like books and movies. And I think it got started like being talked about from this like crackpot book called Skeleton Key to the Gemstone File. So anyways, I mean, just, but anyways, but yeah, like, would they need Judith Fairy Baker to work on it? Could they not find somebody else to work on all of this? And would she have been recruited for this in high school? You know, because that's kind of when we're supposed to believe that she first came to the attention of Oshner and, you know, all these different people. So there's definitely just a whole lot of things about Judith Ferry Baker's story that leaves me with way more questions than answers. And I just another thing is like her whole timeline of when all this stuff was happening with Oswald conflicts with the other timelines that we have. We basically know where Oswald was and what he was doing on just about every day. There's some gaps in some places, but there's an incredible amount of information that we have about where Oswald was and what he was up to. And oftentimes that conflicts with Judith Ferry Baker's story of events. Like for instance, the day that they were supposed to meet at the post office and that they went and hung out with each other in the park for like an hour afterwards. I mean, on that day, Oswald was, um, out looking for jobs, hunting for jobs. And, uh, he was staying, I believe, with his aunt, some sort of family member at the time. And, you know, they were saying that, you know, he, he, that they cooperate a, a story that is completely different from Judas. But anyways, I mean, I could keep going on and on. And honestly, I could have done research for like so long on this subject because we pretty much explicitly talked from like Dr. Mary's monkey. But like I said... I mean, not only could I spend, you know, way too much of my life deep, more deeply investigating all the claims that are in Dr. Mary's monkey, but I mean, if I were to like try and debunk everything that's in the me and Lee book, probably like the next year of my life would be spent to that because the thing is like 600 pages and there'd just be so many different things that you could, uh, you know, seek to try and corroborate or not, but I don't want to feel like I'm leaving you guys out to dry, which I kind of almost had some second thoughts about the subject of this episode because I thought last episode was really good. I thought that that was all stuff that we could prove that that was stuff that we can know with some sort of sense of certainty. And I thought that a lot of that information is valuable. And that's why I really enjoyed it. Um, parts of Dr. Mary's Monkey because it did teach me some things about the JFK assassination and some people who were kind of involved in that milieu and what they were up to. Um, so, I mean, I did find that very valuable and we covered a lot of that stuff that I found to be very interesting and valuable information in the last episode. And uh, we did cover, you know, some of the secret type stuff that was going on at Tulane University um, with Galbraith and all, you know, some of those other people we talked about, um, at the very beginning of the episode, but a lot of this episode 
ended up being just kind of going through Haslam's theory that he extrapolates from the facts that we laid out um, in the first episode of this podcast. So after doing this, I kind of wonder if this was even like the best advised thing to cover because so much of it ends up just being us looking at Haslam's speculations and just kind of drawing some doubt here at the end as to whether there are anything to these, you know, theories that he extrapolates from the facts that we covered in the first podcast. So Dr. Mary's monkey is definitely a mixture of good information with like wild speculation and like some anonymous and straight up dubious sources that we have to be really skeptical of. And it's, uh, yeah, something that I'm almost questioning about talking about because I really want this podcast to be a platform to talk about things that are that are true and that are not talked about as much. Um, so, yeah, definitely have some real reservations, to say the least, about Judith Ferry Baker's story. And I have some real reservations about a lot of the conclusions that Haslam draws. And a lot of this is going to be on you, listener, to decide what you find to be true and what you find to not be true. And, I mean, personally, I think that it's possible that, you know, Mary Sherman and David Ferry were up to some sort of secret project together. I think that it's very interesting that Jim Garrison mentioned Mary Sherman being in contact with David Ferry, but we don't have enough concrete evidence to say what exactly their relationship was with one another and what exactly was going on. But I do find it to be very interesting. And I think that, you know, obviously David Ferry's an interesting character, but I think Mary Sherman's an interesting character. And I am very curious to know the truth about her murder. Now, whether it was a linear particle accelerator, sure, that would explain some of the gaps in the story. But I would definitely not conclude from what we know that that is the absolute truth. But I would be very interested to know what is the truth about Mary Sherman's murder. And it'll probably most likely always be a mystery to us. Um, I think that Oshner is sketchy in a lot of ways. I think the Information Council of America, of the Americas, is very sketchy. I think that his connections to people like Clint Murkison is very sketchy. But I don't think that we have enough evidence to, you know, directly implicate in Oshner in either a plot to kill Castro or to kill Kennedy. Um, A lot of that just comes back to, you know, trusting either anonymous sources or Judith Ferry Baker and, um, and, you know, Haslam's uh, theories when it comes to that. So there's definitely a mixture between fact and fiction and theory in Dr. Mary's monkey. And so it's uh, it can be hard to know what is and what isn't true in it sometimes, but I definitely think there are some things that we know are true in it, like mostly the stuff we covered in the first episode. And then I'd say that there's definitely stuff that we know to be false. or And then there's stuff that, could possibly be true but it's maybe unlikely and 
big claims require big evidence, and that's not something that Haslam really delivers in this book. But also, I mean, when you're talking about secret government projects, I mean, there is that word in there that's pivotal, secret. So it's not like they're going to be, you know, broadcasting this everywhere and making all of this information widely available. So hopefully I did a decent enough job at covering this. I maybe should have just kept it to that first episode and not even talked about all this other stuff. But I did want to flesh out where all of this ends up. And I couldn't think of a way to do that without also talking about a lot of this horse shit and asking some questions about what it is that we can and cannot trust from all of this. So I hope that you guys found it in- interesting. I hope that I it doesn't seem like I'm just like leaving you guys out to dry and not, you know, putting a nice bow on everything and wrapping this all up in a way to where we can know the definitive truth. But a lot of the times that's just not how life is. A lot of the time we don't get all the answers. But nonetheless, I hope that you guys had a fun time and that you found all of this interesting. If you enjoyed these last couple of podcasts, if you've been enjoying the podcast in general, I would really appreciate it if you left a review on Spotify or Apple or whatever it is that you're listening on. So that way I don't look like a total dork who has like, you know, nobody who likes his podcast and maybe it can get out in front of some more people. If you want to look at me, look me up on Twitter, Thing Observer, at Thing Observer, all lowercase. So you can follow me on Twitter. Um, with these podcasts, I've been posting threads with each ones to where you can look at the threads. You can see pictures that are relevant to what we've been talking about in each podcast. And uh, you can also see all the other things that I have to, to talk about. And if you want, you can reach out to me on there, DM me or something. I'll respond um, unless you give me fed vibes. But <laughs> um, so, yeah, you can find me on at thingobserver on twitter.com. And this is, you know, the Things Observed podcast. Follow if you enjoy it. I've got a lot more to come. I've got some really interesting subjects that I'm excited to talk about. And I'm going to try to steer away from stuff that's as speculative as this last one but i really do i've got some real interested stuff that i'm excited to talk about in the works so stay tuned there will be another episode next week love you all take care have a blessed day of the false revenge have struck us once again as the angry seas have struck upon the sand and it seemed as though a friendless world had lost itself a friend that was the president and that was the man Oh, I still can see him smiling there and waving at the crowd As he drove through the music of the band 
And never even knowing no more time would be allowed Not for the president and not for the man Here's a memory to share, here's a memory to save Of the sudden early ending of command Yet a part of you and a part of me is buried in his grave That was the president and that was the man It's not only for the leader that the sorrow hits so hard There are greater things I'll never understand How a man so filled with life even death was caught off guard That was the president and that was the man Everything he might have done and all he could have been Was proven by the troubled traitor's hand For what other death could wound the hearts of so many men That was the president and that was the man Yes, the glory that was Lincoln's never died when he was slain. It's been carried over time and time again. And to the list of honor you may add another name. That was the president and that was the man. That was the president and that was the man